welcome to the Board Game Community Show, the podcast where we get to know people throughout the board game community. Designers, content creators, publishers, streamers, etc. I'm your host, Riley Stock, and today we are doing a different kind of episode, and I'm really excited about it. So the first half, we are going to talk to Brian Chandler and get to know him. And then halfway through, we're going to be joined by Dustin Dowdle from Odd Fox Games. He's a designer, and the three of us are going to talk about colorblindness in board games. So without any further ado, Brian Chandler! How you doing? Hey, I'm really good. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. I'm excited. I'm glad to finally have you. I I think that you were in one of the earlier groups that I tried to get scheduled, and our schedules never matched up. Like I think we were trying back in april or something yeah i kind of remember that too yeah you know life happened (laughs) yeah (laughs) and now you're finally here well 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 (laughs) i'm glad to have you thank you Uh, good to be here yeah let's start with the standard question what got you into board games yeah so i uh as a kid growing up in the 80s so i played you know monopoly and uh sorry and things like that i remember both my grandparents having games at their house so whenever we would go to visit them I actually grew up in the midwest in missouri so either going to see um, my grandmother in arkansas or one in missouri they would have you know basic checkers and chess and things like that but also i for some reason specifically remember playing hi-ho cheerio as a young kid um, <laughs> back then so that was kind of the start say uh fast forward 20 years and uh 2001, whenever Lord of the Rings trading card game came out about the same time or literally the same time as the movies, it was a decipher game. And um, we just really got into that. We had my wife and I had a baby at the time and it was just like a thing we could do. Our our neighbors were playing it as well. They also had a baby. So we spent a lot of time, a lot of money of which we didn't have much at the time, um, opening cracking packs of uh, Lord of the Rings games and just played a lot of Lord of the Rings TCG for years. I actually still have those and not that we'll delve into this topic, but I did sleeve all those cards. So that's my, <laughs> I don't sleeve cards anymore, but I did sleeve those. So I have uh, um, thousands of cards in pity sleeves still in our garage. And so um, then fast forward almost another 20 years in 2018, I uh, kind of changed jobs and then had a coworker here in Seattle who was into board games and tabletop games and it's kind of got back into the hobby or maybe more traditional or, or whatever we would call it, traditional or normal hobby games, um, got into that. Uh, so that's, you know, about three, three and a half years ago. And later that year, I did a 24-hour game night at our friendly local game store here in Seattle over a weekend. So it was like a 10 a.m. Saturday to 10 a.m. Sunday and, you know, played, as you imagine, dozens of games. And that, I think, really kind of kicked off my my interest in getting into it. So, yeah, it was maybe a, I jumped in the deep end a little bit <laughs> um, early on in my reintroduction to gaming in 2018. That is insane. What, did you sleep in that 24 hours at all? Did they take like a nap break? No, no, that was kind of part of the 
part of the fun of it, I guess, is that you did it. You went, you went 24 hours. Oh my goodness. Right? Which, and I'm, yeah, I'm 45 years old. So that's not, it wasn't the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. I don't exactly do all nighters as a regular. <laughs> I liked my sleep quite a lot. And so that was a, but it was really fun. It was cool. And to get to, again, being pr- very much new to the hobby to just get inundated with that many games. Every game was literally new to me, you know, over the course of that entire weekend. So, that yeah. Oh, that is really, really cool. That sounds amazing. I, but also really hard. <laughs> the idea of it is like, yes, I'm in. I'm 100% into that. But then, you know, 8 o'clock rolls around and it's like, oh, it's getting bedtime. <laughs> exactly. No, I hear that. I'm not in my 20s anymore. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man, that's wild. Well, what's your favorite game? Do you have oh, a favorite? I knew this was coming. Um, I feel like I almost have to put it in categories. So... Probably That's the fair. game I find myself talking about the most um, is Fantastic Factories uh-huh. by uh, Joseph Chin and Justin Faulkner. And this is a pretty new game, I think 2019 maybe. And it just it just hits all the buttons. It's, it's a um, dice rolling and dice placement game. Um, it has an ama- It's not a solo game per se, but it has a really good solo mode that feels like the game. Oh, cool. Um, and I... There, jo- Joseph is a local designer, so I actually got to meet him and have the game handed to me um, as my delivery mechanism. And so that probably is part of it, too, is, is getting to uh, meet with him over lunch. And again, this was pretty early in my gaming. So even like the starstruck part of like, oh, wow, the designer is handing me the game. That's really cool. But yeah, um, I love that one. Um, this last year, Super Skill Pinball from Jeff Engelstein is probably my favorite, most recent game. Um, it's a roll and ride game focused on pinball, and it's just fantastic. Just a quick um, roll and go. I do end up playing a lot of solo. Um, I do have uh, kids at home; they're college age, and my wife will play games from time to time. But they're not; none of them are into games quite in the same way. So okay. I do a decent amount of solo gaming as well. So any game that has a good solo mode and super skill pinball is is fantastic on the solo side. And this year, I've really been enjoying Cascadia, the flat-out games. You know, Sean Stinkovich from that crew lives in my neighborhood. So again, I think there's that personal connection of um, I actually got to do some rule book review and editing in Cascadia. My name's in the book. And so for, uh, yeah, so that part, maybe you're right. So there's all those like the little connections pieces there. So I think I don't have a single favorite game, right? Those are some that I have liked a lot, I think, most recently. And definitely things have, have changed under COVID where I have played more games either alone or played them, you know, remotely over video. And so any game, in fact, a um, friend of mine and I did play Cascadia over video, which seems like it would be weird and hard for those who have played it, but it's actually kind of doable. You just kind of have to have your pieces lined up so you can each pick out the right piece and put it on the board. And yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting getting creative with how could we play games remotely that weren't actually meant to play remotely um, is, has been kind of a, a fun part of this process as well. Yeah, that is really interesting. Some games are easy enough. You know, it's like, well, I can set aside my components. You can run the game. And then I just, you know, I can quickly search through the components to imitate your board. But yeah, and that's what we do with Cascadia. And then other games are even easier, right? Any kind of most of the roll and rights or anything that you can play. Oh, yeah. One to 100, you know, Super Skill Pinball is a great example of that, too. That's really easy to play over video. Um, 
yeah, I think anytime when you're sharing dice, like, oh, we roll these two dice and then we both use the same two dice, that makes it easy as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Playstead, he's my guest on this Friday's episode, which is last Friday's episode for listeners. Sure. He talked about <laughs> the pinball game, actually. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think he'll be excited to hear. I don't think he's played it, uh, but he'll be excited oh, cool. to hear that because yeah, he wants that. <laughs> nice. And now I kind of want it. I, I, I That sounds really cool, actually. I would recommend it. I would share. There's actually two pin bars, two boards that are free. So one from the original set of four, and then one from the new set that's coming out, I think, next month, maybe. There's a, a new expansion or standalone expansion that comes out later this year that's four more boards or pins, I guess they call them. I'm not really a quote-unquote pinball person. Yeah, so that's cool. So there's two, two of the eight boards you can just print and play yourself. The rules and the boards are there, and... Actually, have done that. I laminated the the one of the newer boards um, just to be able to play while I'm waiting for the actual game to come out. Oh, that's awesome! That's smart. Normally, there'd be a lot more stuff about board games, but we are going to do a part two or a second half of the episode with some other colorblind fellas, and so we are going to skip right to what you do outside of board games. What kind of hobbies do you have outside of board games? Yeah, fantastic. So I, I like to read a lot. I've some I've somehow gotten back into Star Wars specifically over the last couple of years. Um, I think maybe with the, with Disney Plus and that you know I've really enjoyed the Mandalorian. I grew up on the original movies. I think I saw at least the last couple in the theater. Even um, although I have vague memories of that, I was very young. Um, but so I've been like, yeah, I've been listening to, um, I was going to say I've been reading Star Wars novels, but I have an ongoing fight with my family about the definition of reading a book and whether if you listen to a book on audio, do you have to declare that or can you claim that you've read a book? So that's that's a little aside that has been an interesting discussion in my life. I claim that I can say I've read the book. Oh, good. Even if I haven't. We had that discussion over Dune. So we watched the Dune movie. We all like Dune a lot. And then we were talking about how, like what our experience was with Dune. And I was like, oh yeah, I've, I had read Dune this summer and it was fine. I didn't love it, but I really enjoyed the movie, I think in a way that I maybe wouldn't have if I hadn't read the book. That was kind of my statement. And then the um, somebody in my family then had asked, wait, did you read the book or did you listen to the book? And so we kind of went down that whole track. So anyway, that's kind of <laughs> as an aside, there's an interesting discussion about what is it What is it to read a book? Do you have to read a paper book? Can you read it on Kindle? Do you need to declare that you've read it electronically? If you've listened to the book, does that count? Are we trying to get credit here for reading books? Like what's, what is even going on? Um, or is it more about the content? And then do you absorb the content in a different way if you listen to it versus reading it. I think that's very, I think the answer is absolutely yes. And then I think how much that matters might depend on the, the context of the conversation. So that doesn't answer your question. Um, reading, so I do read a lot. I yeah, read fiction, I'll read nonfiction. My day job, I'm a traffic engineer. I focus on traffic safety. So I'm a, a consultant here at a, a firm in Seattle. I've, um, as mentioned, I think I mentioned, I actually grew up in the Midwest, so I've worked for government as well in traffic safety, but spend a lot of time just trying to make the road safer and try to reduce um, people getting hurt and killed in traffic crashes, which is actually a really big deal that kind of stays under the radar. But more than 30,000 people a year, like 100 people will die today in traffic crashes in the United States. Um, not to bring the podcast down, but... No, it's fine. 
that's very much something that I'm trying to focus on is what can we do as an industry to try to make, you know, reduce that number, make that number lower. I think there's still a lot that we can do. So um, it's really rewarding. It's, it's, it's fun. It's something that I've done now for quite a long time. And it's, um, yeah, just really, I get a lot out of that. And in the midst of that, I've actually applied some of this color vision deficiency in that world as well, that if you'd imagine Traffic signals are a good example that some people, you know, it's hard to tell what the colors are for some people and signs and pavement marking. And there's, there's just different things on the road. If you think about how much you use color to determine what you're supposed to do while driving or walking or biking, that um, that's important as well. And so I've, I've been doing some accessibility work in transportation as well, uh, just to try to make it easier for people like me to be able to navigate on the road um, for the purpose of it being, you know, both, you know, maybe more efficient, but most importantly, safer for all of us. That is really, really fascinating. Yeah, I've never known anyone that did that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a fun job and feels like, yeah, I like to think that I'm really doing some good, right? Or being able to make the world a little bit of a better place on the kind of quantified standpoint of, you know, less people being hurt or killed in crashes, and then with, you know, with gaming your hobbies, I'm like, oh, also the quality of life. Then, you know, not only are you living longer, but what does that life look like? And are there ways that we can um, enjoy our time or, or have fun? Yeah, I'm a kind of a traditional IP fan. I love Lord of the Rings, as I've already mentioned. i kind of a Disney nerd, especially old time kind of Disney history stuff. So I really enjoy going to Disneyland. And just learning more about that park and how it works. There's a you know a lot of overlap between Disney and gaming. A lot of overlap between Disney and transportation, frankly. So there's lots of lots of my interests kind of overlap in a number of those areas. That is really cool. Before we last thing before we switch over to the group setting, uh, we're gonna do ridiculous theme. All right. Have you thought of one? I did, and so. Mentioned that I grew up in Missouri. I grew up in a small town in Missouri, and there was a county fair every year, right? Like you would imagine probably in the movies or whatever. And there's this game that I am convinced in my head existed, and I don't, I haven't been able to find any real evidence about this. And I need to ask my parents if this was a real thing. In my head, canon, this was called Betsy Bingo, and there was a grid, say it was like 100 feet by 100 feet of just grass, there was a fence around it. And it had a gate and that was um, gridded off into say like a hundred or maybe 50 different squares. And we would um, pay money to say, I want square a 12. All right. And so over the course of the morning, people would like claim these spots on the grid and then they would let Betsy the cow into this pen and wherever Betsy pooped, that's who would win the prize. <laughs> of um, wherever her poop landed on that grid. And so it was, at least, again, in my head, it was called Betsy Bingo. And so I think there is a some kind of drafting or um, even maybe hidden movement or something, some kind of game where phase one is we all determine where we want to place our bets on this board Phase two, Betsy enters the pen and then somewhat randomly, but maybe we have some way to prod or to poke or to get Betsy the cow to move in the way that the players want to so that she then ends up relieving herself on 
the square that I have selected so that I can earn money or earn points. Oh my goodness, that is so great. I almost picture like, yeah, Betsy moving across the grid and then each time she moves into a space, like roll a die about whether she poops or not or something, you know? And and so there's that like random element, but you're trying to influence. Yeah, and now that you say that, I hadn't, maybe it actually is like a mechanical thing where it's like you, you almost wind it up or something or you hit the button and she kind of does almost like a um, the vacuum things. Like a whatever the what they're called now. Oh yeah, um, the yeah, hoof, yeah. or robe room Roombas. Roombas. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost something like that. And then she, you know, I don't know, those you know, the games at Target where they have poop in the title seem to do well. So maybe there's something there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that that's fine. Do you have that's one a great one? Well, I came up with one I I generally it seems like when people talk about their jobs, it's a rich field for it so like i even came up with the name chaos control and it would be trying to de like you start with an annual death count and you just try and decrease it by you know mitigating certain problems but your problems might cause or your solution might cause more problems or uh you know, Absolutely. trying to solve that puzzle. Of- yeah. Welcome to my day job. Yeah. I know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I've had an idea. I used to time traffic signals as my normal kind of day job. And that one, I definitely feel like signal timing and coordinating the signals together to get them to work just right. I feel like that absolutely is a game that I've tried oh, to yeah. make and haven't been able to quite get it to work yet. But I think one thing I always liked about that, we would simulate traffic and there's actually computer programs that have you saying, hey, and you do animations to see how the cars go through. And then you actually put that timing into you know, every traffic signal essentially has a computer at it. And this, if you see there's these big silver boxes near every traffic signal, there's a computer in there that's running that signal. And those signals are talking to each other if they're close by. They're supp- you're supposed to be getting green, 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 right? There's this the idea that you're able to flow through once you get going. Um, and that essentially is, I think I liked it because it was a video game. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think there's something there. That is, yeah, sure. that's fascinating. I didn't even yeah. think about that as a job type thing or, well, of course it would be. Somebody's <laughs> got to figure that puzzle out. <laughs> uh, exactly. Well, that concludes the Brian portion. It was short, but sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. We'll get to know him a little more with, with Dustin. All right, welcome to part two. We're doing a colorblind panel with two colorblind folks. Danny was going to join us, who is a colorblind miniature painter, uh, but he has a child that he had to watch. So kids ruin everything. Uh, (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. So we are joined here again by Brian Chandler and Dustin Dowdle, who is a designer, local designer here in Utah. Hi there. We're good. Hey, everybody. Brian does Colorblind Games, which is a site that reviews board games based on how colorblind friendly they are. I read a lot of those reviews, actually, because Dusty is a local designer here, friend, and uh, you know, one day I will game with him, I promise. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's really an interesting topic. And then Danny, as well, is a really close friend that I like to game with, and it's it's always interesting when colorblind issues come up and actually real quick side thing i I swear i'll let you guys talk uh (laughs) but 
Dusty used to be my boss at Target when we did asset. Uh, is that what it's called? Asset protection. Asset protection. Yep. Yeah. How did I mess that up? Anyway, security, whatever. And so sometimes you'd be like going on the walkie and be like, "Hey, man, there's this guy in a red hoodie," and you're, and you would just be like, "What? I I don't know." Like, yeah, you have to be more Always describing people that. with guy with dark hair, dark shirt, light pants. Like stuff like that. Like just and part of me, like I might have a pretty good idea of what color somebody's wearing, but I felt so self conscious about it that I would just hedge the way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think anybody who has a color vision deficiency just finds other ways to describe, right? Because they don't. I know for me at least, I don't want to be wrong because it can still feel embarrassing, maybe less so with people in my life because they yeah. know, right? And so it's not really a big deal like in my house or with my friends, but I'd say out in the world or in, yeah, in other areas, I think it's easier just to say, oh, the guy in the striped shirt. Or if somebody even says, I got the orange or whatever, you're like, oh, you mean the one with a hat on or whatever? You know, you just like find a way to kind of yeah. give a secondary description to be sure that I'm understanding it. It's, I don't know if I thought about it. It's just like double coding in a board game where you're like kind of double coding a description of that person that's not just related to color. Yeah, that's well said. Well, and you and I, or no, it was in, oh, it was in that article you just put out yesterday where you talked about modifying your board game so that you could be able to tell the difference between colors more quickly or, or giving you another indicator. Yeah, yeah. So there's kind of two, there's a lot of games that do this inherently. And that's, you know, it's really great when they can do that where they're not using color as the only distinguisher. Um, and there's some games that do that and they can be a lot harder to kind of manage or deal with. Uh, to me, the classic example is Century Spice Road. If anybody with a color vision deficiency opens up Century Spice Road, it's browns and greens and yellows and oranges. And it's, it can be really difficult to tell some of those apart. And I think I even got the colors wrong that are in Century Spice Road. <laughs> um, but whatever they are, the cinnamon and the saffron and the whatever's. Um, and so for that one, I initially, you know, saw it at my local game store and just passed on it. So I'm like, there's no way in the world I could possibly play this. And a few months later, I was thinking, you know, maybe I give it a go or see if there's a way that I could mock this up or modify it or do something to it that would allow me to play it. But also doesn't totally change it. Like, I don't want to go, you know, buy a $50 game and then spend $70, you know, with different components so that I can play the game. But in this case, I kind of brought out my, you know, 99 cent Sharpie and was able to just make some modifications to that game. Now, that one's a little bit intense because every cube and every card is connected to the colors. So it did take needing to make a lot of changes. There's some, there's other games where it's a lot less. Um, you don't need that many changes. I'm thinking of like uh, Pandemic Hot Zone North America is one that comes to mind. That, that one's actually generally colorblind friendly except for the four pawns that are the four different characters and they're close ish to each other where they're a little bit hard for me to distinguish. So I just made little marks on those four pawns, but everything else was fine for me because of the way that the colors work in that game. The other part of it that's really important with color vision deficiency is it's different for everybody. So the way that I may even modify or mark up a game is different from a problem somebody else may have with that game. I would say a good example there would be Marvel United. There's an expansion in Marvel United where you get to these, I forget what they're called. They're the characters who can be good or bad. Um, oh yeah. They're a certain color 
that for some people is very confusing with some of the other um, components of the game. And for me, it's not a problem at all. So I, I wouldn't have any issue with those, but I saw a whole tweet thread about how that was really problematic for somebody else. And so it's, that's an important part too. It isn't just choosing the right color palette, but again, the best way is to have other distinguishers besides color um, that allow you to determine the different whatever's, you know, components of the game. Yeah, that was actually my tweet thread. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Danny, Dusty's brother, him and I were talking, and I was like, oh, like, I really like this pur- these purple, you know, uh, what are they called? Uh, anti-heroes or whatever they are. And he was like, what? I thought they were just blue. Like, they look like the, they look the same as the heroes. I didn't, I can't tell a difference between the two. And so Eric Lang, I know he tries to make his games colorblind friendly. He's very good about that but somehow that that flew under the radar for them yeah um can you see the difference there i i can see the difference because one of them is darker if they were the same tone i probably would have more of a a problem that was a comment i was going to make is if you're going to use certain colors changing the the tone can can drastically change it and i think that reds and greens is a really good example of of this where the blues and purples or certain earth tones as, as they go together if one of them is dark and one of them is light, that makes it so much easier just by, by making that one slight adjustment. I typically am, am always finding myself choosing the, the white pawn or the yellow pawn because they're the most <laughs> easily distinguishable or orange or something like that. Um, but when you've got so many colors that are just so similar, there, there's even non-color deficient individuals who struggle with it. I'm thinking of the, the West Kingdom series and the, the brown coins versus the, the red coins on the board. Like almost nobody... Oh, yeah sees that very well um or or certain the blue and purple pawns even non-color deficient individuals really struggled with those particular colors in in the uh, paladins game when azul summer pavilion we were playing that with family the other week and theirs are like tan gray silver black (laughs) and or white or something i don't know they're terrible color choice like constantly moving the wrong scoring tracker on there but anyway colors are important in games really important uh so i can't even comprehend how it is not seeing it but what uh because there's a bunch of there's a couple different i don't know actually how many different variations of color blindness or what colors you can and can't see so what are your do they classify that as like a... Yeah, so the, the, the basic idea is that there's three different cones inside your eye that allow you to see the kind of three... It may not quite as, as clear as like just red, green, blue, but it's kind of that idea. There's there's different cones. And so there's three different types of colorblindness, um, of which I'm going to forget all the names of them. Um, they're in the article that I wrote. Um, but I'm a... Uh, Deutronope or Deutronopia is the most common one. That's like what they call kind of common red-green colorblindness, even though that's even very much a misnomer because I, I have that type, and yet sometimes blue and purple or pink tend to be as hard or harder for me to distinguish than red and green. And what I often tell people is it's really, there's the different types, and then there's the different levels, um, and everybody's just a little bit different. And I often say for me, like the Crayola 8, if you think about that, that small set of crayons you had in kindergarten, that one's actually pretty good for me. I can even see green and brown okay if I'm you know, looking at those specific, you know, very um, basic colors, right? Your basic primary and secondary colors. 
It's when you get into those Pantones and those hues that are anywhere in between there is when things get confusing. And as, as Dustin said, that idea of the tone of going darker or lighter is a huge benefit um, to be able to, to deal with that. that. What I tend to go to or ask the question is, could I play this game in grayscale? Like if I had to just print and play this or if you put a grayscale filter, a black and white filter on your phone and then looked at this game through your phone, could you play that game? And a surprising number of very colorful games, the answer is yes, you actually could. Um, and so I think it's that's like the first filter that makes it 100% colorblind friendly is that you don't need to see colors at all. There are there's a very very small percentage of people who are like literally colorblind. You know they can't see color. Um, that's you know less than one percent of one percent. But if you think about that subset, you know can they um, would they be able to play the game? And if they can't play the game, could you make a small change by pulling out a sharpie or doing something different, going from cubes to you know, something from uh, upgrades, like upgrades can be really useful too. You know, going from yellow orange cubes to actually the little wheat component and the little stone component of having them be um, different shapes and things like that can help a lot too. So it's just, just thinking, what if this was in black and white? Could I still play it? I know in my youth, I always thought colorblind was just like grayscale. I thought you literally couldn't see colors. Uh, but of course, you know that I, I understand differently now, as of yesterday. Uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> Dusty. What about you? What uh, what's your colorblindness? I I don't know that I I know the specific name of it, but everything that Brian's saying sounds really similar to me. I think that the pinks, purples, and blues in the kind of cross section that they all exist in are are the hardest for me. So in in a box of eight uh, crayons, like Brian was saying. I'm going to take a wild guess between blue and purple most of the time. Um, other than that, the, the other crayons in, in that box I can do. Once you get to 16, I'm taking guesses on quite a few of them. Yeah. Well, and ideally, in that situation, and this is a big deal for kids in school, you know, myself included, kind of how I discovered is I was coloring the mitochondria incorrectly in sixth grade biology class. That's kind of how I found out. I was getting... I was like a straight A student getting a C in biology. And I'm like, what is going on here? It's because I was coloring green things brown and blue things purple because we were using colored pencils that didn't have the name written on them. Mm -hmm. um, or I'd have a class where you you took all the paper off the crayons. Like that was just like a normal thing for whatever reason um, that they did. And so that, that caused a lot of problems. So again, that double coding. So if I have the 16 crayons, but they still have the paper on them where I can see which one is blue, purple, and which one is blue, then, you know, that, again, that's, that's the solution. It's not that I don't, and it's even not, the other part of that too, it's not that I don't enjoy a sunset or see the, you know, beautiful trees in the Pacific Northwest. I do. I just can't necessarily identify all the different greens. And maybe I'm not seeing the same, I know I'm not seeing the exact same version of that. You know, if I see a rainbow, maybe I'm really kind of only seeing three or four blended colors where you might get to see all seven. You know things like that, but I'm still enjoying the the colors of life, but maybe just can't name or identify them in quite the same way. So that I kind of describe that as part of the the difference as well. And you talk about green and brown. Now I'm just curious. This is well, it's related because you know the tree trunk is brown and then leaves are green. Is that ever that diff like? Does a tree ever just look like one color? 
Not really because of context. Now, if I were in some alternate universe where the tree trunk was green and the leaves were brown, I would probably see it wrong because I've, uh, I know that trunks are brown and trees are green. And so, and that, yeah. So anytime that I am looking at some game boards, just across, you know, in front of me right now, I can tell you what I think these colors are because I'm looking at a building and I'm sure that the tiles on that building are probably brown. The, I'm looking at one that's coffee beans, so I know what color coffee beans are supposed to be, so I can identify that color by the context, um, but not because I actually know inherently what that color is. There's also something else on that same board that's some kind of fruit, and I have no idea what color that is. It could be <laughs> peaches, it could be oranges, it could be, I, I can't really tell. So I think that's the thing, or I don't know what color the person's hat is. But I also know what color hats are. So I'm like, well, it's probably more likely to be blue than purple because more people wear blue hats than purple hats. So sometimes you just it's like you know, context, use context clues. clues. Yeah, absolutely. And if it's a sports team, well, I've learned over the years what the sports team colors are. So if you're wearing a University of Washington shirt, well, that's purple. If you're wearing a LA Dodgers hat, well, that's going to be blue. And so if – but – over the last 20 years or so, whenever people started mixing the colors, so then you start to have like red Dodgers hats, um, that's problematic <laughs> Where, um, <laughs> to be able to identify the color. It kind of, now again, who cares, you know, whether somebody, but if you tell me that guy's wearing a red hat, it's not going to help me. If you tell me they're wearing a Dodgers hat, then um, I can know that because I know the logos of all these sports teams better than I know their colors. Yeah, con- context is huge. I had a really, really crazy experience as a kid where I was wearing a-, a shirt with a soccer ball on it, and it was kind of this mid-tone color shirt, and I had always assumed it was green. It, I, I just imagined a-, a soccer ball being in the middle of a green field. Like, that's what my brain told me it was, and I found out it was it was gray. And I thought, never in my life has- have I thought that I would confuse green and gray and that totally happened because of that shirt, because of the context. And I always saw it as gray after that. It was like immediately my, my brain started to shift. Oh, this is green. And I literally saw it as, as green versus later when I found out it was gray and, and my brain made that shift. And so the context hmm. is everything. It, it's unbelievably powerful to, to have the context behind a color. Yeah. And then not violating that is super important. So not yes. having green I was going to say green apples. That's a bad example because there are green apples. Not having, you know, but not, you know, not specifically, not having green cherries maybe, right? Or something that's obviously in real life is always a certain color. Then to have that as a different color, it can be really problematic. And I think Absolutely. that's, but again, that can be used, you know, to your advantage too. You know, I've, um, there's a game called Vamp on the Batwalk that has a lot of colors that are very similar. So there's orange and yellow and red and pink, I think are all different color cards, but each of those has an icon. So the purple ones have a glass of wine, the uh, orange ones have a, a pumpkin on it. And so it's just, these very iconic, like pumpkins are always orange, right? Apples, you kind of assume are always red, even though they're not, but that's still like kind of ingrained in us of what color a thing is or a heart, right? A heart would be red. So I think there's there's a place for a, some standardized iconography that I think might even, you know, be valuable at some point to just, but I think from game to game, just using that. And most importantly, not violating that is probably the more important piece. And you can also do it in an abstract way. Um, there's the game Mariposas by Elizabeth Hargrave. And they use stitching. It's like a really subtle stitching around each of the hexes on the board 
to give additional information about what color that hex is. And so the colors themselves, there are greens and oranges and reds and maybe yellows that can be a little confusing. This happens a lot in nature-based games because the real world is, you know, very diverse and uses a lot of, um, like Dustin said, earth tones. But by having that stitching in those, most people maybe wouldn't even notice the stitching is there, but I use it constantly to be able to, to determine what the difference is between those hexes. And then one more example before I forget, um, the Isle of Cats uh, by Frank West is a fantastic example. Is that the right? Am I getting that right? The Isle of Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Isle of Cats. Um, yeah. If you look at those cats, most people can just use the cats by color, right? They're blue and purple and red and green and maybe orange. Um, but if you're colorblind, you also determine that the cat's ears are all a little bit different from each other and their tails are different. So specifically the purple and the blue cats, I have trouble telling the colors, but the purple cats have spiky tails and the blue cats have floofy tails. And that actually goes not only on the cards, but even the little meeples for each of those, they're in their colors. And then the little cat meeples are also the shape, their little ears and their little tails are the shapes of what that blue cat is. All the blue cats have the fluffy tails. And I think that to me, that was just brilliant to be able to do that in a very, very subtle way. There also is a little colorblind card, kind of like an extra card that I can use when I play. But if you're not colorblind, you don't even need to pull that out of the box. It doesn't matter to you. So to me, that's even what I try to do when I modify games then is to try to do it as subtle as possible. Like I don't want to disrupt the game for others and I want to be able to play. So back to that example of Century Spice Road, I didn't put an X on all eight or six faces of every green cube. I found out that if I just put a slash on three of the faces and then put those in the bowl, that there's going to be plenty of those that show up to me with that little slash mark that allows me to know those are green. And the same if I have a dot on the other ones. I could just put a dot on two or three sides, and then that gives me the information that I need to be able to distinguish that without ideally detracting from the experience from anybody else. Right. Dusty, you're a designer. The Odd Fox games, I've played a couple of your games, really clever, really great. Do you find it challenging when you bring a game to the table with your family or with play testers that you've mixed up colors while designing? Oh man. Yeah. So it's, it's not uncommon for me to call in even my youngest children to, to come and say, Hey, is, is this green or is this yellow? Because I I've had green crowns on King's heads more times than, than I can count because on, on Photoshop's kind of a color palette or whatever, uh, unless I'm, I'm doing it a certain way where I, I can specifically choose a, a color that I know what that color is and it names that color. If I'm just choosing it in the gradient, I'm thinking that I'm logically choosing yellow, but it might be green and I just got too close to that line and I just didn't know that. So like those types of things, I've just learned to, to get around it. Um, there, there's a certain, oh, what, what's a, a good, good word for it? it? You just have to kind of get over any kind of pride around color. You know, when, when you're young and every child has learned color and you haven't, you kind of have to go through this this phase of, of recognizing that it's not because I, I'm not smart or that I'm, I'm bad or I didn't learn something. Like, it's just a deficiency, right? And for a time, there's, there's this kind of self-consciousness that I talked about earlier. And I don't feel like I've got that as much now as, as what I had when I was younger. 
And you just have to ask, you use the resources around you. In fact, as a therapist, I'll, I'll often use that as an example when somebody's needing to learn how to advocate for themselves. And I'll use this as an example. As a grown man, I, I can't d distinguish certain colors and I have to use resources around me. And that's just a, a life skill, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Rob Kramer, he was on two episodes ago. He talked about your gaming retreat. Uh, you were there and he said it was really interesting playing with a colorblind person. <laughs> and then it came up actually quite a bit. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to like kind of expand on. So I, I was playing one of Jeff Beck's games and he, he was super apologetic ahead of time, knowing that, that I'm colorblind. I'd play tested with him online before. And he said that, certain changes hadn't been made in, in his games to, to help with colorblindness. And so I just had to ask the the people around me. And it wasn't all that terrible to to distinguish it on my own. But I, I wanna I wanna know that I'm playing the game right. And so oftentimes I was just asking, hey, can you help me out with this? Or is, is this right? Or this piece over here, am I doing this right when I'm moving this or am I supposed to do this one? And so you just have to ask those kinds of questions. It's I really like being involved in those types of discussions because I want people to recognize that somebody else needs that experience altered. And, and I think it's just a, a good growing experience, just like in Button Shy, we, we talked about earlier, constraint is what makes those games so amazing, right? And this is just one more constraint that people have to work through. And Isle of Cats is such a beautiful example because the constraint created something that was honestly beneficial for everybody involved. And, and I just think that that's beautiful. Yeah, and it's literally beautiful, right? Like the fact that yep. those cats are not only different by color, but they're different by design. And that design is inherent to the art design and the beauty of that game. And that also is colorblind friendly. He didn't just put a star and an X and a circle on the cat's foreheads to distinguish them for me, which also would have been fully functional and fine. Yep. Um, but the fact that they did it in the way that they did, is like, that's the next level. Now we're talking about... These are colorblind friendly, not because we kind of, I pulled out my Sharpie and put a, you know, a whatever on each of the blue cats, <laughs> which is fine. And I'm still going to do that on the game. And in fact, I'm going to continue doing that more and picking out the, the games that are the hardest to try to figure out how to, how I can play them. But to be able to embed that um, inherently in the process, I think it's really cool. You remind me of something, Dustin, whenever you're talking um, about needing to ask questions, sometimes that's pretty easy to do, especially a game that has mostly open information. But uh, sometimes it can be really hard. And I'm going to put myself at a disadvantage if I have to ask somebody about this hidden card in my hand, whether something, whether I can play it or not, if all of us Absolutely. around the table are just playing the game. And so that, and that's not only frustrating for me, but frankly, it's frustrating for everybody because now we're not playing the game the way it's meant to be played, right? Because I'm having to divulge something about my hand or some other kind of secret information that's not supposed to be divulged um, because I can't tell what's on my card. And I think that's where an easy solution to that initially is play open information games, right? Where everything is out on the table. And so that way I can ask questions, but sometimes even asking that question about a particular spot on the board kind of gives away what my strategy might be about mm -hmm. using or not using that place on the board. So that's not the only you know, open information or being able to ask isn't the only way to do it. And also it can be still, if I'm in a new group or with people I don't know, there is that trepidation of needing to ask. You know, I had, don't think I mentioned my white whale right now is Sagrada. Um, I have a really hard time playing Sagrada. Oh, Both man. the dice and the spaces <laughs> on the board are difficult for me to distinguish. Um, I really want to get Sagrada and just 
figure it out. And I haven't done that yet. And I think there's plenty of ways to do it. I think there's ways to mark up the board to distinguish the colors. I think I can, you know, color some of the pips black or put marks on some of the dice or even replace. Sometimes it's just replacing one set of dice would make all the difference, right? I don't need to yeah. replace everything. Um, but well, I actually did, just, this yeah, is a little bit random, but in Sagrada, cause my, my wife and I like to, to play that game and they're tough for me depending on the, the table space that I'm playing because they're translucent dice sometimes the table underneath it can help to accentuate one of those two colors that, that I struggle with most and it makes it playable. Whereas other t- table spaces, it makes no difference. And, and I have a very, very difficult time between the two of them. Yeah. One thing that's really good. One thing I did real quick is I had a friend actually make, so we made a little, just on a piece of paper, just put circles of the different colors. Cause you know, you roll all the dice and then you put them in the colors and you draft the oh, color. Uh, and so having like, so the blues are all together inside a circle that says blue. And then the purples are in the circle that says purple. So there's a way to kind of, you know, just so smart. Yeah. So like, you know, getting a little help from your friends is also <laughs> can be nice as well. Just thinking through, but also as you mentioned, does he having that on a white piece of paper allows those dice and lighting makes a big difference. Actually, mm-hmm. Um, talking to Chris Barrows, Chris was having trouble with New York Zoo, and he determined that he was playing in a lower lighting condition situation where I think some of like the greens and browns, I actually haven't played New York Zoo, but I think some of the greens and browns can be harder for some people to distinguish in certain lighting conditions, where if your lighting is brighter or even you know wider light versus yellower light, that can really make a big difference sometimes. And how, again, it's very individual about how different people can see or not see or identify different colors. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's really fascinating. My mind is just like blowing all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Just like new information. Uh, I know that you, Brian, have done some proofreading for like to make it colorblind accessible, right? For for Yeah, and and even just basic. I mean, something, yeah maybe pitching myself. Something else that I do is I, I do a lot of technical writing. I've authored a textbook in my day job and, you know, done some other stuff. And so I, I, um, I guess am a writer quote unquote. And so, um, and I also really like to edit. So I've done some proofreading of rule books. Um, part of the angle there is to think about the, the color blind friendliness, you know, hopefully getting a chance at that rule book or of a, a game in its early enough stage to even support development from an accessibility standpoint. I also have other accessibility things in my mind because I'm in this space every day, right? So there's also low vision players who um, need to have maybe icons be bigger or the text be bigger. Um, uh, and then other people who maybe have mobility issues or they, you know, it's hard for them to hold a lot of cards in their hand. And so having a hand of more than seven cards can be problematic. And maybe they'll have tools like have the little card holder in front of you on the table or there's other things that, you know, folks can do to address their own issues. But some people just have small hands. So if you have a hand size of 10, that's just, and I need to be able to see all those cards, that can be a problem. And so again, and that's not, oftentimes like colorblindness, like that issue, making it more accessible, frankly, also makes the game better for everybody else too. And I think that's one of the big messages here too, is I've never seen a game become more color vision accessible and become a worse or harder game to play at the same time. It almost always makes it better in both ways. Um, because it's more clear, right? It's like what you're doing to make it more clear for me also makes it more clear for everybody else. Yeah. I know we're running out of time here. So are there, uh, let's see. 
I guess, final tips on how to make things colorblind accessible or or final thoughts on that? I, I wish we could go for an hour more because this is just <laughs> fascinating to me. I can always do a part two. I was say the main yeah. things for me are um, just thinking about having it in mind at all. Like, you know, like you had said, Riley, some of this is like new to you as of this week. And so just having that in your mind of knowing people who are colorblind, so it's on your radar, I think helps a lot. I think the more designers, developers, publishers, playtesters who can have that in their mind is going to make published games better. Um, double coding is the key. And so just thinking, can I play this game in black and white? Could I play this game in grayscale? Um, if not, that's okay. Every single game doesn't have to be grayscale friendly. Um, but if not, then how do you choose a color palette? Um, Carla at Weird Draft Games does a really good job of this. Her color palettes are pretty colorblind friendly for me. I don't think I've had to modify any of her games yet, even though she does use color often to be the only distinguisher between certain components. But she's using a very specific set of colors that are at least better. So I would still prefer there to be another distinguisher than color, but if you need to use just color sometimes, which you might need to use for your game, being careful about what those colors are is really important. A couple of things I'll, I'll mention real quick. Going back to what Brian was saying about uh, it benefiting everybody, people's eyes recognize shape first, color second, language third. And so anytime you're, you're putting something on a card or anywhere else, shape is actually going to be the, the most beneficial distinguisher between two different factions or whatever it might be. And so it really genuinely, from, from a scientific standpoint, will benefit everybody first to, to work with shapes before color anyway. I think color is, is kind of a, a standard that, that we use, and I think that it's a great supporter when, when you're separating things. But shape first, color second, language third. So if there's a lot of text on a card that's supposed to distinguish two factions, that's going to be worse for everybody involved. It, it just It's more mental load that people have to take on. The second thing that I'll mention is, for the most part, all people are colorblind in the peripherals of their vision anyway. And so as you stare straight at something, that's your most accurate color. Once you get into the peripheral, you, you've got more grayscale um, vision anyway, and your brain fills in what you believe that is. That, that's all of us. And so a, a great example of this is I, I worked with a, oh, a guy who would do a, assessments with people and, and he would you know show somebody an orange marker and he would say, I'm going to pass this around your head and let me know when you see it uh, over here, but don't turn your eyes. And so he would turn or pull it around their head to, into the back of them and switch it with a pink marker. And as soon as it got into their peripheral, they would say, okay, I see it. And he'd say, what color is it? And they would say orange. And he says, now look at it. And they look at it and it's pink, and not a color-deficient individual. And so we, our brains are amazing in the way that they fill in that space anyway, just like what we talked about, how context matters. In fact, all of us fall into that same category. It's just that when you look at something directly, you're going to see it more accurately than, than we will with, with the deficiencies that, that maybe Brian and I deal with. And so going back to this idea of it benefiting everybody, it really does because sometimes table space is so big, you're only looking at things out of your peripheral anyway. And so really, when it comes down to it, making something colorblind friendly is genuinely better for everybody in, in, the, in the whole system, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Perfect. Let's close out there. So why don't you guys both plug your stuff? Brian? Sure, yeah. So easiest place is colorblindgames.com. That'd be the place to go for the blog, the articles. My contact information and stuff is all in there as well. I'm pretty active on Twitter at ChandlerB22. 
Um, and so, and that's everything from, again, the, that's mostly board game stuff these days um, on my Twitter feed. I'm not really active anywhere else. Frankly, I try to avoid most social media and focus in on one, but I'd say between that and the website, that's definitely the place. I'm really interested in um, adding more guest articles. I, I'm definitely realizing scalability is really hard <laughs> um, of running a website or, or writing articles and stuff. So always looking for other folks um, who may have stuff to share. Um, I've done a few of those. Also do co- profiles of coverblind designers and other people in the space. Um, love doing Kickstarter previews um, of trying to help people that may be deciding sometimes hard to tell from a Kickstarter page whether whether I can play it or not. And so getting my hands on it, being able to provide that service to other colorblind gamers to know, hey, should I back this Kickstarter or not? The worst thing is to back a Kickstarter and then a year later get it and not be able to play it, right? And so I know with Kickstarter, it's harder because you're not getting to play a demo version or really, really see as much about it. And so I think that's um, some value there. Um, yeah, I think that's the main things. Thanks. Uh, Odd Fox Games on Facebook is where you can find me. I also participate a lot in the Board Game Designers Guild of Utah. Uh, their website is bgdg. Dot games. Yeah, I had to make sure that was right. Dot games. <laughs> <laughs> losing, losing the letters in my head. bgdg.games. And, and those those are kind of the two spaces that I'm in most. Yeah, and you write the the monthly newsletter. You include a lot of really good information. So even if you're not a Utah designer, there's like lists of contests uh brian and i were talking about how you know there's contests he likes to enter in and and so you have a you've gathered like all of them i'm always surprised at how many contests there are going yeah there's always stuff happening and i would say your your list of contests is my primary site to see what contests are up so thank you for doing that i appreciate it oh absolutely not being yeah, local to utah that. but that's still that that's an office service great service to have all those in the same place appreciate that Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Dustin, for coming on and being willing to talk about your colorblind experience. I will be straight with you. I regret doing this in two parts. In the future, I will do a topic for an episode or I'll just have a guest for an episode. And the reason for that is because, you know, we got to know Brian a little bit, but we were having so much fun talking. I just wanted to keep getting to know him. You know, and and then we had to stop to record the second part. And the second part was so awesome. And we spent like half the time I wanted to spend on it. So it just makes sense. In the future, I will do better. I promise. I'm learning here. There will be another topic-centered episode coming up. And I I have plans for a couple of other ones. So those might be something I do more. If you if you like that, let me know somehow. Uh, reach out to me on Twitter or email me at RyleNerd on Twitter or the board game community show at gmail.com. If there's a topic you think I should discuss, let me know. I I would love to I'm open to it. If you want to be one of the people that comes on and talks about it, great. Even better. I went on Twitter and asked a question. And this is actually starting soon. I will I will just make this one of my standard questions because I think it's a really good question. What is a fond memory you have related to board games? A memory you hold dear. So I will read all of these answers. At Zombevin, that's Zombev or Bevin. He was on the, the podcast, one of the earlier episodes. Our friends got the deluxe version of Throw Burrito Throw. 
Oh, no, throw, throw burrito, which my daughter was just old enough to play with us. However, because she was so young, we played as a team and I got to feel like a hero when I picked her up, giggling her arse off and legging her around their garden. That is adorable. I love it. At J underscore Milton one, that's Jeff. I awkwardly introduced myself to strangers that played magic on a whim to try and make friends as an adult. Oof, that's hard and very brave of you. They introduced me to so many cool board games on the off nights we didn't want to play magic and just hung out. I only discovered the Twitter BG community a year ago. Heart, heart. That That's incredible. It paid off. Your bravery paid off. That is, <laughs> I wish I was as brave as you. I had to do a whole podcast to make new board game friends. Um, at game whenever at game whenever Tim that's Tim from board game hot takes playing code names and ethnos in the main plaza in Cortana Cortona I don't know how you say that in Italy Cortona Italy with my friend Mike who passed away from cancer last year we sipped coffee on oh my I can read I swear we sipped on coffee and beer, people watched and enjoyed the casual companionship that board games provide. I miss him tons. That is really sweet. A, a little bit teary-eyed because I, yeah, that just is a really incredible story. And it just shows how much board games can bring us together. At All Games New and Old, that's David Rodriguez. I was playing Baby Dragon Bedtime with the kids. There's a simultaneous play mode where you're trying to get and play the right cards as fast as you can. My oldest daughter kept screaming, I hate it. She didn't hate it. The fast play was just giving her some good stress. Cute. Sounds like, you know, I think that's the thing, right? It's bringing your friends, bringing your family closer together. Being able to have that connection and that experience with your daughter is is such a touching thing i don't know that you know the the coolest games in the world the most uh hardcore fan dedicated games may not invoke that and it may just be some simple game that that brings you closer together so that is so cool at fun organized which is phil from the podcast organized fun I bought Atmosphere when I was little with my own money that I'd saved up. And even though they absolutely hated it and it wasn't their sort of thing at all, my mom and granny played it with me as soon as we got home. That is really sweet. Aren't mums and grannies the best? At Too Much Enthusiasm, playing Tapestry and Irish Gage with Tim and... Uh, board game hot takes Adam. So both of his board game hot takes co-hosts. The first time I met Adam, not yet knowing that this would be uh, the start of our trio's long gaming friendship. That's wonderful. Yeah, that kicked it off. And now we have this amazing, wonderful podcast by these three amazing, wonderful folks. Occasionally two others, but, you know, those are the three main folk. At Bach underscore Ty, Ty Tiefenbach. My first date with my wonderful girlfriend was at a board game cafe 
because she knew I was that type of nerdy. And we got out a game of Blockus to break the ice. We ended up talking for close to four hours, and it was probably the best first date I've ever had. That's incredible. That would be a really, really good first date. That'd be a great hundredth date. That's just a great date. At Zoe Allred. Oh, this, I'm glad that this came up right now because maybe I would have forgot to mention it. Zoe changed her name from Katie Allred, who was on a couple episodes ago. And she, the the game where we played Persuasion, Community Plays Persuasion, that episode, we played her game there. So she is no longer Katie. She is Zoe with an X which I wanted to put more sizzle on. So Zoe. A long time ago, I was playing smash up with friends and I was exploiting the you're pretty much borscht card and shouting it every time I used it. To this day, my friends will do something like share a still image of borscht and will laugh about it. Or at least I laugh. And it has, she included in a picture of it. It's the You're Pretty Much Borscht, and it has a bear. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. I didn't pay attention. I got this close. So it's almost like a maybe like a farmland or a field or something. And there's a guy falling to the ground, horrified looking. And then there's this giant bear that's lunging at the guy that's on the ground. And then there's a guy with a knife lunging behind the bear at the bear. So it's like the bear is going to kill that guy, but the guy behind him is going to kill that guy. Oh my goodness. That's, (laughs) that's a wild card at resilient. Uh, That's re who's from SDR games. Stop drop and roll games playing King of Tokyo with Lori J. Blake's friends. The first time I ever met them and totally trashing them. I love that memory. That is great. Great first impression, you know. You meet your your uh, significant other's friends for the first time and you completely trash them. Wonderful. <laughs> I love Rhee and Laurie. They're, they're just so great. Laurie's actually going to be on in two episodes. He's part of the next topic episode. At Chandler... Oh, man. At Chandler B22, you know, the person we just listened to, Brian Chandler. Our first holiday season in Seattle, 2010, we got a post-Xmas cabin in the woods. We played Pokemon and Ticket to Ride all weekend. Oh, yeah. We get a cabin occasionally. Uh, We get to use the family cabin twice a year. And a lot of times it's just board games for a weekend. And it is one of my favorite times of the year at fifth Waldorf, David Waldorf playing games with family over multiple evenings because we didn't have time to finish the game in one sitting. That is, yeah, that's great. A long extended gameplay session, essentially a reason to keep on gaming. I think for me, I'll include one of my memories. And the thing that kind of brought this up was Phil from Organized Fun and I were talking about, I think, something about fond memories 
of, of board gaming. And that got me, or no, he said something. That's what it was. I figured it out. He talked about how on one of his episodes, they were talking about an automatic shuffler. Like he, he's so bad at shuffling and Mark, his, his significant other was saying that, you know, I need to just get you a electric shuffler, something to that effect. I'm sure I messed it up. And that got me thinking of playing games with my grandpa when I was really, really young. My grandma and grandpa loved to play card games. You know, we would just use face cards and poker decks, you know, and combine them or, or play. We'd play pig or uh, rummy or uh, so many different things. And and they always used the electric shuffler. And so that just flooded me with very fond memories of I mean, that's through my entire life until he passed. I mean, even up until like a few months before they they passed, I I got to play games with them and they would always use that same electric shuffler. I wish I could have gotten that. All right. Fond memories. Look forward to hearing more of them because I think that's going to be a standard question. I think that's a great one. Protocon has switched to Protocon Online. It's still going to happen January 28th and 29th. There will be a link to the Protocon Online Discord. So just look for that in the episode description of the podcast. I got to play Intrepid with Jeff Beck from Uproarious Games. He's one of the designers of Intrepid. If you have not played this game or looked at this game, go look at it. It is incredible. It's a co-op game which maybe turns off some people, but not me. I love co-op. But one of the things this does so, so well is that it eliminates quarterbacking by having, you, you do simultaneous play, but everybody works so differently. Uh, my character produced, or my board was producing climate and power for the space station. Two other peoples were producing oxygen and water and then one other person was producing the same type of stuff with as me but even that like we had those different resources that we were uh, that we were producing but beyond that our characters worked differently so like i would have four dice and somebody else would have like eight dice somebody else would have three dice somebody else would have six whatever and you roll the dice and then you use them on these rooms and those rooms generate power or climate or whatever it is. And then that actually allows you to manipulate the dice you already rolled. But sometimes you don't want to do that, but you have to. And so you have to really puzzle out how to utilize and change these dice. I guess that's how my character worked. That might not be how every character works. But I'm so excited to play as more characters, play with more people. It really is just a phenomenal game. So if you haven't seen it, go look for it. Uh, at uproariousgames.com, I think is what it is. You could just Google Uproarious Games Intrepid if you want. And it, yeah, the game blew my mind. Another game that blew my mind is Arkham Horror, the card game, which I have been playing uh, on stream with Ryan from Cardboard Conjecture. That has been a blast. We've done two scenarios now, the first two in the main box. And they are tough. Each time I start feeling really good and really confident, like, oh, yeah, we got this. And then all of a sudden, no, we do not. There are a lot of cultists. Oh, man, we are going to die. It is 
So fun. So you can see those past two streams on the Bridge City Board Gamers YouTube channel. You can just type that in on YouTube and find it. Bridge City Board Games, probably even type in Arkham Horror or JABS, just another board game show. And you could watch those past two ones. They're both about three hours long. The first time was my very first time playing the game. So some of that was teaching. Then the second time was just a bigger uh, game. So it took us longer. But we are going to stream the third one next week. And that'll be fun. It'll be the finale. Will we survive? Will we win? I don't know. What's coming? I don't know. I'm, I'm really genuinely curious and nervous about playing again. But it is it is just so much fun. And Ryan is really fun to play with. Uh, that guy just rocks. He's also, he's been on the show. So go look up his episode, Ryan Rao. Making Manhattan by John Wood, who is my board game design mentor and friend. I just adore that guy. He is such a nice, good guy. Uh, anyway, Making Manhattan came out through Buttonshy Games, and I'm pretty sure that it's still available on buttonshygames.com. So go look at that. I play tested the game, so I kind of saw it changing. And it started off, when I first started playing it, it started off amazing, and it only got better and better with it, each iteration. So go check that out. One final thing. The holidays are upon us, which can be a joyous time for many and a stressful time for many. If your mental health is taking a hit right now, I want you to know you're not alone. Many, many, many people deal with this kind of thing. And if it ever feels like too much, I hope that you take comfort knowing you're not alone. But also feel free to reach out to me, reach out to your friends, call a hotline. There's literally no shame in taking care of yourself. There's no shame in saying, I need a minute. I need a minute to take care of myself. I'm going to play a board game by myself. I'm going to go play a video game by myself. Sometimes you might not feel like doing that, but you should. You should push yourself to just try and find those little joys in your life if you can. I believe in you. I do. I struggled with mental health problems the majority of my life, and I've made it. I've been making it so far. Uh, despite many, many tries not to make it. And, I, and I'm very jovial about my, my uh, history with my mental health. Uh, and that's just the type of person I am. It's how I kind of bear the, the weight of it. And, and it also helps shape me into who I am, you know, surviving that. But I just, I just do what you need to do. Take care of yourself, Okay. That is it. That is the most important thing. I saved it for last. So until next week, keep nerding out. Mm -hmm.